I don't tend to just accept the status quo of a situation. My whole business is predicated on trying to find out what is that next aspect that we exploit or look at or, or develop on. Hey now, this is Dan Aberhart, and I am the host of this episode of the Growing the Future podcast. podcast. My business partner and little brother and I, Terry, we started this show to bring you the incredible conversations we're fortunate enough to have with the amazing folks in our network. These episodes will elevate your mindset, they'll motivate you, they'll inspire you and inform you in such a way that you can be successful going forward in the agricultural space. So let's get growing our future together. Welcome to the Growing the Future podcast, where our future is always bigger than our past. Today, I will be speaking with Patrick Verkley, a young man from Ontario who started his own broiler farm in 2017. He has a bachelor in architecture from the University of Waterloo, and he is president and CEO of Verkley Design and Modeling for over the last decade. There he does design and consulting work in the agricultural world, improving the labor efficiency in dairy barns, developing sustainable agriculture structures, and he has an overall focus on the development of design of an entire farm. In this episode, some of the things I'm going to delve into with Patrick are Patrick's entrepreneurial journey starting his own design firm and farm essentially from scratch. We're going to delve into how his ADHD has affected his learning and his career trajectory and his entrepreneurship and, and how it can lead to depression, which I never knew before. I'm very interested in that whole concept. And get some perspective from Patrick on this east slash west rural slash urban divide in politics and economics in this country that we all love, Canada. From an Easterner who's in agriculture, so it's a slightly different perspective than we're used to in the West, but I think it'll be, you'll find it extremely valuable. You can find Patrick on Twitter, at P. Verkley. He's very active, young man, sharing his story and his thoughts. And on Facebook, as Verkley Design and Modeling Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. Really appreciate it. So coming from a farm background, which you can tell us a little bit about if you like, but the first thing you did career-wise was you went into architecture. What is the story behind that? Yeah, sure. There's probably a number of your listeners who come from maybe the smaller farms and not the giant big ones that are running 20,000 acres and have 12 combines or whatever. We were <laughs> a small farm, 150 acres and a broiler barn. So the broiler barn was made the main thing. But in our case, there just wasn't a whole lot of room on that home farm for, for me to be coming back into. And it was always sort of made clear that we like that you want to farm and we'll see what can happen there. But certainly if you want to go do something that isn't farming, that's totally cool as well. But for me, I'd always wanted to farm. And so it was just trying to figure out what do you do to get back there. But So why did you pick architecture to get into back? It seemed like you chose architecture to get back into the farm. Tell us about that. Back in the day when I thought architects made a lot of money, I thought that would be a way to bankroll (laughs) getting into farming. Okay, well, I can work a decent job in agriculture or I can go and try and make some big bucks somewhere else and then come back and farm. So I was like, okay, what is that? I was like, well, I kind of find this engineering and architecture thing interesting. I'd always 
been watching Discovery Channel and seen any show where they were going in and how they built a giant dam or a big industrial project or a skyscraper or a building or all of that stuff, I just found really cool. And it was something that I started playing with as well, just on the side through, while most kids were playing video games, I was watching TV and had a giant sheet of graph paper out trying to design how we would have rebuilt the dairy barn if we'd stayed in dairy. It's like a <laughs> stack of two inches thick of graph paper somewhere of all the really bad barn designs that that started with. But that's where that interest in design got, and that's how I ended up going to Waterloo School of Architecture. So you were applying your talents vigorously to the design of farms at one point as a very young man. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, so that graph paper designing dairy barn thing evolved over time. So I'd been doing it on graph paper and then I'd also would build physical models at like 164 scale for your little your farm set. Eventually I was taking design tech class in high school and this professor introduced us to a program called Google SketchUp. And Google SketchUp is, in my mind, the simplest and easy 3D modeling program that is out there. You can pick it up in an afternoon and you can do move mountains with it. So this guy, this teacher in high school showed me this program and like the first thing I did is like, well, how does this program work? So I start playing with it and Usually the first easiest thing to build is like a garage or a doghouse. So I did that first, but right after that, it was like, oh, I could build these barns that I've been doing on graph paper. <laughs> this would be... So I, I drew up a one, one barn, and then pretty soon after, I'd been interested with these robotic milking machines. And so I, I found this plan that Jack Rodenberg had done, and he's the... He's a dairy barn design consultant here in Ontario. He'd worked for ministry as a dairy advisor for years and years. And so I took his dairy logic plan and, and made a model of that. So I had these two models and dad was looking at this like, well, that might actually be kind of useful for industry. Bear in mind, this is like summer of grade 11 or grade 12. So we, we how drove, old are you now? I'm 29. I'll be 30 in March. So that would have been, I don't know, when I was like 18. So, yeah, we hopped in the car, we went to an open house and talked to some of the salespeople that were there, and they were really interested. It was not even planned this way, because it was a parlor bar and open house, but that company also had the new dealership for Lely Robots in Ontario. So that was Penner Farm Services out here, which I know they're out west as well. They've switched around a bit as things have grown, but that's where I got started was these guys were trying to put these new robots into barns and I was just trying to figure out how do we make it happen and how do we share that vision that we've got and ideas we have as salespeople, as those sort of involved with the discussion to farmers who really know their farm but don't have that chance to have that iterative process. So how did you turn that into a business? I mean, most guys start out doodling dragons and superheroes or sports heroes or something you're doodling barns but you and your father had the inspiration that this could be a service to to business people might want to pay for this yeah i'm glad he pushed me in that way it wasn't (laughs) i probably would have just continued to do it for fun but he'd had the experience when he was farming with his he, he was farming with four brothers running a 200 cow dairy operation up until we switched and got into chickens but they'd had 
years and years of kitchen table discussions of what's our plan? How do we get to move this forward? Like, all right, we know our barns are getting old and run down. Like, what's the next step? And they'd have a plan and they have another plan. They have another plan, but they could just never get on board with it. And he's like, man, if we'd had something like that back then, we might have just actually stayed within the dairy business and kept growing that as opposed to saying, all right, we're ready to peace out. You talk about designing the farm from a holistic perspective. What sort of difference does that make to the people that you've worked with and in your own operation? I think we all recognize just how complex our farm operations are. They're not just one nice entity that exists within itself. Certain things apply more or less, but like dairy is one of these processes really, which has a lot of different factors involved. We're sitting in my chick in my broiler barn. If you're watching the video, you can see some chickens sitting in the background, but this is actually pretty simple. It's a big rectangle with good air quality and nice lighting <laughs> and all that stuff. But it's just all the chicks show up, we do the thing, we grow them and then then they move on to the next step. Dairy is an ongoing operation where you've constantly got cows coming off of being dry, starting to milk again. They're producing calves where you've got to have the space to raise those calves to bring them up. Like the whole ecosystem of a dairy farm is self-sufficient. The dairy farm has to, unless they're buying in their heifers or whatever, but even still, like there's other aspects to that. It's a really complex system. And if all you're doing is focusing on selling that one part, the parlor or the robot or your freestalls, it's very challenging to take a step back and look at the bigger field. But you've got to, if you're going to really start gaining your efficiencies within any type of farm operation or any operation, it really extends beyond agriculture as well. I'm just thinking of all the farmers out west too that would have loved to be able to design a yard from scratch. I know somebody who's doing it right now. And just with the size of everything and how everything's evolved, it's really hard to anticipate the future. But you're thinking about the farm as a system, not as a building. And that's probably mm -hmm. made the difference in your service. Yeah, absolutely. And expansion was there too. I can't remember how many times you'd go into a farm and the guy's like, well, we're never going to be that big. Well, you may not be, but your kid certainly may think that's where things need or should or have to go. And if it really makes no difference now, but it makes all the world a difference tomorrow, well, then that's a really easy decision. And even if it costs you $20,000 today, like that's a substantial amount of money. But if it saves you a million dollars down the road because you built the barn in the right spot where it starts flowing into what you're going to do next, like that's really cheap. Cool. For the audio listeners, if anybody's interested in checking out Patrick's drawings and an explanation of how he goes about designing a farm. You can go to YouTube, Growing the Future podcast, and check that out. Patrick, what does your business look like? Who are you servicing and, and where is the business at today? I'll explain how we get there. So I'd gone to Waterloo School of Architecture and done that. And when I came out, I did a lot of what I just showed you, which is the barn plan, working with farmers specifically, trying to help them build a business that's going to be successful running into the future. But about that same time that I'd come home from university, we were getting to the point where we were over capacity in my parents' broiler barn. So it was a case of, do we sell quota or do we 
build more barn space. And I'm of the never, ever sell quota ever. Don't ever think about it. Mom and dad were getting closer to that retirement age and they weren't really sure if they want to do it. In talking with some other individuals around here and one individual especially, she'd just given the ideas, well, how about you just build the barn? Like you get your parents to help you back you on this and give you some assets to start rolling with and you start this on your own not just you help out mom and dad like make it your own and I am really glad that that advice came when it did because what ended up happening was yeah I said okay if you guys give me so much quota to utilize to get this whole thing running then I'll be able to buy the farm that the barn would go on and build the barn and get all that up and running. So what kind of farm do you have right now? What kind of farm are you operating right now, Patrick? So I've got 50 acres, 42 acres workable. I do cash crop and then I do the custom work for my parents' 100 acre farm. And then I've got broilers as well as my parents now. So I've got about 22,000 units in my barn that we built in 2018. And then my parents have about 22,000 units in the barn that they'd built 22 years ago when they'd gotten out of dairy. So how did you come to essentially create your own farm? It really was that process they're described of really just wanting to make it and trying to figure out what do I need to tweak within the equation to make this happen? Because it will not be as simple as here's the money, now I have a farm. That's just not the way this one's going to work and not even a different career path bringing money in. What I had also learned through university is Waterloo's sort of renowned as a co-op program. So I'd had, I did five co-op terms working in architecture offices and I worked in, first one was in Aurora. The second one was in Calgary, Alberta. So I lived in Calgary for four months and then I worked in Toronto for three semesters at a firm. Interestingly enough, it was a guy in Calgary who said, you got to pick here. You're going to be a farmer, you're going to be an architect because you can't be both. And I was like, why can't you? He's like, if I got to pick between hiring you and hiring someone who doesn't want to be a farmer, I'm going to pick the guy who doesn't want to be a farmer. And the reason is, which I've learned through those co-ops, is that architecture is a career which really does not play nice with many other things in terms of a work life. It's a job that's, it's demanding and As projects ebb and flow, like it demands a lot, if not all, of your mental power. And I'd seen that as I was trying to run my design business while working on these other jobs that I just didn't have the energy to work all day thinking hard and then come home and be good at thinking hard for someone else. (laughs) Too much thinking hard. (laughs) So speaking of thinking hard, you shared that you have ADHD and and this is almost uh, something you discovered really through your process of addressing your long-term depression. How did ADHD affect your learning performance? You've got a degree. You started an architectural design business. You started a farm. You've obviously you know, accomplished a lot. Had this, is it a disability or what? It, how do you view it? What is ADHD? How did it affect you? And how did it lead to depression? As I've been evolving on that, I think, I think ADHD is, in most cases, actually a bit of a secret weapon, and it's pretty darn handy. This is good news for all of us that have, have, I mean, symptoms or been diagnosed. It's when you don't recognize that you've got it and you aren't managing for it that it turns on you. And that is what led to me 
initially being diagnosed with depression because things weren't being controlled kind of end of university and into those co-op terms when it's just there was a lot going on and as far as me it, it really just didn't feel like I was living up to my potential that I wasn't there was something defective that was going on and I just couldn't figure out like it just felt like I was lazy and didn't have the willpower to make it happen that demoralizing and that to me is where the depression really kicked in but understanding what the ADHD is and now when we look back at at what was going on through high school and elementary school and university like it all really starts to make sense how it all came together because you you'd ask there how the hell did I get a a competitive university degree with this and yeah, it's not like you failed at anything. No, I was watching another podcast recently, and this guy, these two brothers, Brett and Eric Weinstein, one's a world-renowned evolutionary biologist, and the other one is the managing partner at Teal Capital um, in the U.S. And these, they both have severe learning disabilities, as they talked in this discussion. And what the the one brother said is that a lot of the world can be viewed through a systematic lens. There's systems behind everything that if you understand how the system works then you can apply it to a whole bunch of different things. And what I had done throughout school was I didn't have the attention span to really pay attention to the lesson and I really didn't ever seem to click when they did it, when they did explain it anyway. So I just tuned out and then just figured out how to do it myself. The reason we never noticed it was that I was kind of a good, I was a well-behaved kid. I didn't get out of my seat and just run around. Like, I, I keep <laughs> a lid on it. But I self-trained, plus been raised in an environment that really encouraged self-learning. And the cool thing with self-learning and what this Brett Weinstein guy was talking, or Eric Weinstein was talking about with this sort of way that you can systematize a lot of this knowledge is you can get... It's his number, so I don't know how accurate, but his notion was that you can get 80% of the power of an idea. You can utilize 80% of that potential idea with about 5% of the input effort that you bring to the table. So I was really efficient with my effort and attention. From the outside, it looked like I was quite lazy, which that is what the system was going to make you look like. But realistically, it freed up a hell of a lot of time for me to spend weekends drawing dairy barns and it helped and (laughs) look at other things I got so efficient on a lot of that stuff that it made it so that I could get through a university program where we're not just putting in 5-10% if I look at my classmates I was probably up to 25% of, of their effort I never did quite as well as they did when they put in 100% 100% of the effort, 110% of the effort, but I got pretty darn close. So you're saying your ADHD allowed you to implement the 80-20 rule? Is that, that what I'm getting here? You're just inherently by nature skimming over and reinventing what you need to do in, in your own mind, and, and that allowed you to free up free up energy, which led you to start a business and, and essentially created your farm that you're working now. Yeah, I think that's the great way to put it. It's the 80-20 philosophy and then picking which ones you're going to go beyond 80 which ones you're going to go beyond and really specialize in i would i i don't i'm certainly not putting in just the 20 percent 
effort on my chickens here. That's where I'm going for 98, 99%. Well, and when you're doing a drawing, how many hours of focus go into a single operation that you designed, like what you showed us here today? Yeah, usually more than I end up billing for, which is part of the problem. <laughs> that was design is interestingly enough one of those spots where the 80 20 rule seems to start to go out the window because you can get good and and that's where you start systematizing it is if you're doing something that you're always doing then it becomes really easy you just have a whole cat back catalog of ideas that you can draw from but when you're trying to come up with something new that's when you really got to dive in that is where you need to control the ADHD in my mind because what I found where I'd struggled in school and sometimes where I struggled in the design business too was that if I was passionate and really gung-ho on a project then like doesn't matter how big the mountain is we're gonna move it or find a way to bore through it or run around it that's if you've got ADHD you've got part of you that has that just insatiable drive to get through it the flip side if it's a long task that requires you to keep just slogging away at it day after day after day, that's really hard. And that's where treatment for ADHD, sort of those stimulant medications, really can open up some doors for you to start to to narrow in on how the on how to get really good at a specific thing or really fine tune and craft something. You think back to school and they, the whole essay writing process, like you have a first draft, you have a second draft, and then you have a third draft, which is your sort of final. All through school, I never did drafts one and two. I just wrote the final thing. And I got pretty darn good at writing essays on the fly without any revision <laughs> process whatsoever. I still got an eight, like 88 in, in English in grade 12. Sounds like a good superpower. But it doesn't get you to 100%. If you really want to narrow it down, that's when you've got to sit and mull and go over and iterate and dive into it. And yeah, that's the discipline that ADHDers need sometimes. What are the tools? What are the infrastructure? What are the learnings that you had to go through to get where you are today? Because it sounds like today you've managed both aspects of that two-sided coin, your ADHD, which sometimes puts you in that depression zone by the sounds of it. How are you managing that? So for one, I'm managing it with medication. So I'm now on Vyvanse, which is a stimulant medication. It's a long-lasting one. So it lets you go the whole day. What that helps do is it's not a cure-all, but you know that feeling of procrastination where you just, you don't want to do something and you just you're trying to build that willpower to get over that. Oh, I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's what most of life felt like prior right. to the just constantly living in the gap. Yeah. Whereas ADHD medication that's still that's that feeling still there but it is way less and it's way easier to get going on things. So, that's step 1 to managing it. Step two is just recognizing what your strengths and weaknesses are. What actually interests you versus what you think interests you, but your interest would start to peter out after a little bit. You can be blessed to work in your unique ability. That is a gift, my friend. And I'd also recommend, I was listening to something the other day with the great show that I always enjoy. The guest was Edward Hallowell, and he wrote Driven to Distraction. And I just ordered that book. I'm really excited to read that because 
I share a lot of these symptoms and I think it's just a case of, of managing the different ways that we look at information. And I think for those of us that would maybe recognize or identify with being ADHD, which I think is a higher percentage of those in, in entrepreneurship. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a fact that I am not wired to sit there and do repetitive tasks. Some people love entering data and are very good at it, for example. I might be excited about the novelty initially for the first three hours. After that, my eyes glaze over and I'm multi I can't, I can't. I'm not wired for those things. But when it comes to absorbing massive amounts of information and sort of glossing over and making some big picture conclusions and, and, and surging ahead with new initiatives and all the things that I'm really good at as a visionary in my company, I'm thankful for it. But you're right. It has to be a case of, of really recognizing that. And I hope that helps if anybody out there is listening. And they suffered with that whole thing of being in the gap. I never made a connection at all between having ADHD and depression. But I think there is something that happens too. We're we're so highly stimulated by all the information that comes in. It's almost like a high when things stop. Then we have this huge crash and it's like, what do I do next? And he addresses that in his book. And I'd recommend that for you and anybody that's that's listening. I'm going to read that myself so I can get a little bit better handle on my superpower. So... Thanks for sharing that, man. It's not always easy to share personal stuff like that, but I see that you're sharing that a lot of that stuff on Twitter too. And and now we've got this great culture in agriculture where we're talking about a lot more. And it's okay to to recognize and address these symptoms because it's so rampant. Everybody seems to be on the spectrum, especially these days with everything that we're faced with, largely mental in our days, not so much physical. And I think back in the day it was easier because you're just tackling the physical things. And we didn't have as much time to consider the mental. And my brother went to Africa, for example, and they don't really have a word for depression because they're really busy working on the next meal and survival. So that's where we're at. I think that's what we inherited. But the third theme that we really wanted to talk a little bit about was the current thinking in agriculture, binary thinking versus non-binary thinking, black and white, us versus them. And shortly after the uh, insurrection in America, which we're all <laughs> glued to our TVs and watching some of the best reality TV show one could ever hope for. Not that obviously the events are horrific and everything, but this is the age that we live in. You were making a comment to Canadian farmers saying something to the effect like, hey guys, let's not just look across the border and cast aspersions or cast stones. Let's look at ourselves. And you made a whole bunch of points in there. And that, in the end, that's why I reached out to you and wanted to get more of your perspective. Because I think it was an interesting commentary that I think we find ourselves all in this dialogue about agriculture currently. So what were you saying there? How do you view agriculture as somebody in Ontario closer to the power center? What are you seeing as the challenges, the opportunities, politically and economically, socially speaking? Like, what's your thoughts on all this, Patrick? So I'll start with some quick context as we talked about that time that I'd spent in architecture school and co-op terms in Toronto I've got some of my best friends have never lived outside of a city and vast majority of my classmates had hardly even had a driver's license when they were in school their world was the city they live in and then just as the case of moving between cities to different cities But what that gave me was a really clear perspective of just how small agriculture is. We have a hell of a lot of space, but we don't have many people relative to the the rest of society. And I think I've always maybe been a bit of a 
I don't think it should be contrarian thinker, but I don't tend to just accept the status quo of a situation. My whole business is predicated on trying to find out what is that next aspect that we exploit or look at or, or develop on. Within that sort of political standpoint, when I was going through school, my classmates had just about as much love for Stephen Harper as most farmers do for Justin Trudeau. Really? <laughs> yeah. And trying to come to grips with what that means. and Because you're supposed to be on our side being on the farm, right? This isn't just like east and west. I think this is rural urban, right? Yeah. I really actually think this is a rural urban thing. It's just you're so far west where there's so little urban for the most part that there's still going to be clearly rural urban. When I'd had the discussions with my classmates about what was going on the farm, my classmates cared a lot about the world that they lived in. They cared deeply about, ethical's not the right word, but they did, they cared about the intentions behind what they were doing and what impact they themselves had to sort of be the change that they wanted to see in the world. And so when they started thinking about, okay, well, what's the impact of this food I eat every day? The first message that they come to is the sort of, organic is wonderful vision of the world. And they just stopped there at a really high level. I don't even know if I got through with them while discussions, but at the very least, I was able to sort of just give them something to consider that was outside of the narrative that they were completely surrounded with. In organic agriculture, I'd point out, it was like, what is the carbon emissions of organic grain relative to conventional grain in terms of a per bushel or you're quite concerned about rainforest uh, deforestation well why are you telling us that we should grow things that are 50 to 75 percent efficient relative to conventional you've got a bunch of these arguments but you're not really able to understand the context but as this pertains to what we're talking about here today if I was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative I wouldn't have even been able to have that conversation I think dyed in the wool anything negates your ability to change your mind. You have to stick with the messaging that that is the orthodoxy of that group. That doesn't allow you to alter and, and change your perspective on some issues. And to me, that openness to shift your point of view on different things is just really valuable. If you look at who I follow and interact with on Twitter, maybe a raging liberal in terms of the ag Twitter sphere. On the flip side, if you talk to the people I went to university with, they think I'm a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, like stuck-in-the-stone-age kind of person. Like, I'm in the middle, yet somehow with, for either side, I'm both those extremes. So what are you saying then to the agricultural community? You had a message. If we're open yeah. and we're listening, what the hell now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the hell now? Your industry's under siege. Yeah. Livestock production, grain production, the carbon tax, all that. Like the way that we farm today is under siege from the folks that you went to school with, for example, that are voting. Yeah. My perspective here is twofold. One, I don't see any benefit in demonizing and villainizing the other side. I think that just means that you won't work with them and you just dig in your heels. So to me, this vitriol and 
dislike for Justin Trudeau that just sort of borders on just absolute hate. And I know what I'm seeing on Twitter is, of course, usually the the most extreme of that, but that vitriol is dangerous because it precludes any ability to sort of have a dialogue and discussion with that other side. As this pertains to specific issues, I'm going to just dive in here on this carbon tax thing because I think it's the flashpoint right now, but I think it illustrates the bigger perspective. I am cynical of our ability to get carbon tax repealed or done away with. I don't see where you get the votes to make that happen because I look at 80% of society and 50% thinks it's absolutely critical to saving the planet in the future. And the 30% are kind of, hey, if that's what we got to do to... So now to me, applying what I've done in my business is like, okay, what, how do we take this to our, our advantage? What's the possibilities there? And that comes from not just digging in my heels and saying, no, we carbon tax is bad. We got to get rid of it. It's destroying jobs as well. There's a discussion within here and within Ontario, we grow a hell of a lot of corn and we dry most of it. You don't have to dry your corn with a grain dryer. You could grow shorter day corn that dries mostly in the field naturally. What, what happens is you take a hit on your yield. You don't get to grow quite as much, but less corn usually helps prices. So that's not a bad thing on the one side, but that's not. <laughs> I'm going to tell that to my dad because he wants a grain dryer um, really badly. We can't really grow corn to speak of. but On the flip side, we had technologies before that let us dry corn that didn't involve burning fossil fuels to dry that. I had a bit of a discussion on Twitter about corn cribs. Now, I tell you, most people thought I was batshit crazy because they'd worked with corn cribs and they're like, never again. The flip side, my dad had worked with chickens when he was a kid and like that layers in that case. And he's like, I'd never again. But we got better at that. Like he had a lot of shovel and wheelbarrow work. You don't have to do that anymore. Point there is to say that, okay, you can either get mad at the situation or you can try and figure out your way around it. From a policy point of view, if the will of the people is that we need to get a handle on climate change. We've got to bring down our emissions and that what we're doing to make that happen is tax carbon. Agriculture needs to be proactively at the table to say, okay, if you're going to tax it, then can we tax it in this way so that we can create some economic opportunities for agriculture to do the right thing? I think we're starting to move there, but if you get paid to sequester carbon in your ground, like that's increased organic matter. That was something that you people wanted to do anyway, but just weren't because the economics weren't quite there or their practices didn't let it happen. But well, this starts to change the balance of the equation if you want to let it. That's where if you can take off your sort of rigorous standpoint of this is where we are, that's where the opportunities start to come up. And that's not to say that there aren't serious, significant counterpoints to this, because as I was talking with some Western farmers on Twitter, there is it's all well and good for a chicken farmer to say that when his cost production is going to reflect the carbon tax and it's not an issue but if you're shipping grain onto a global market there's no way to recoup that unless it's a government type subsidy but hell if that's what they want then you got to make it clear that's what you need the flip side i don't think you should not tax carbon if the goal of the tax is to reduce your carbon goal or emissions then they can't just get rid of it for agriculture because that's not providing the economic incentive for agriculture to change and adapt and Quite frankly, as sort of a young 
business individual. I see advantages for businesses that are willing to to adapt and change going forward. Do you think we can get farmers paid for sequestering carbon? Yeah. How much would be the question? Is it worth it? That'll be another question. There's already systems in place right now where you can get paid for sequestering carbon if you start following these systems. I can't remember the name of it. There's a presentation I was a part of or was listening to a couple weeks ago about just this in the, in the U.S. where some of the more progressive farmers are looking at wide row corn for and cover crops and a bunch of all this stuff that just sort of sounds really crazy, but they're making extra money because they're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil for long-term sequestration. That's at least one revenue stream for agriculture. The bigger issue with, to me, with the East-West divide is going to be that the East thinks that burning a lot of the East in that big city over there, they'd kind of like to see us just stop burning anything at all. And you're in a situation where if it's not agriculture, it seems like a hell of a lot of the economic business that you have out there is based around the production of that thing. As someone in a supply managed industry, I can certainly understand that there are benefits, strong, strong benefits to understanding when a good system works and how that benefits society in ways that are a little bit maybe somewhat counterproductive if you take the really, really hard line on it. On the sum of the total, really aren't that bad. And I think, to me, that's the sort of really muddled opinion on on that right now. (laughs) All these are complex issues. It's pretty sad where things are at, though, I will say. And I, for one, would like to see more positive progress. We have to be involved in these conversations if we want to hear or have our voice heard. And it is very concerning the way things are heading. But honestly, I'm an optimist. I think technology is going to mitigate a lot of this and there'll be new opportunities and and some old industries are going to be fallen by the wayside. That's just the way it is. There's a lot of people, we cannot forget, there's a lot of people that lamented the replacement of the horse with the steel tractor. They did not want it for all kinds of reasons. And I don't see a lot of people left on horses, whether we like it or not, here in the West, renewable energy is definitely the future. There's just no two ways about it. I think we're going to leave it there. I don't know if we could solve all the world's problems, but it's very interesting to hear, A, how you got into your businesses and started them. I think that was an awesome achievement. B, it's very fascinating. I've never made this connection between ADHD and learning and, and depression, and it's something to reflect on and become aware of in our businesses as we work with so many people facing these issues. Depression is the number one reason people are not coming to work globally now. <laughs> I guess, I don't know if you got to count COVID or whatever. <laughs> that was pre-COVID. Mental health is the number one reason people are not showing up at work. As a business owner, that's a big deal. And as a business owner with some traits of ADHD, I want to explore this uh, topic more. And I learned a lot today. And then just hearing your perspective as an Easterner, but you're kind of on the right in the sense that you're rural, but grew up in that urban environment that that we just can't relate to understand. I think that's all fruitful. So having you on the show is an interesting angle. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to see all what you do. And I, I know I'm going to be watching you on Twitter and hearing your commentary on things going forward. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a great chat. And yeah, I hope what we talked helps maybe give some inspiration to other people or just a different way to think that's the point of having these conversations is to just 
broaden everybody's mind, give a different perspective, and just get a better sense of where we are. Well, that's why I had you on the show, and you did a great job. I really appreciate it, Patrick. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me know. I really appreciate it. If you want to connect with me and my brother, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can find Growing the Future Podcast on Instagram. But one of the really cool places to check out for past episodes and more content, different aspects of the show is growingthefuturepodcast.ca. And there you can become a Growing the Future Podcast insider. We will send you updates when the show is published immediately. And some of the other content that gets created around the show I usually publish a little blog about my takeaways on LinkedIn so you can connect with me there specifically about this episode and more. Uh, What else? Send us a note and I'll send you a t-shirt, man. Uh, Send us your size. So I appreciate you following the show. Check out AberhardAggSolutions.ca. That's a company that Terry and I are partners in, uh, distributing uh, some really cool products for agricultural inputs and you can check out aberhartfarms.com that's the farm you can check out suregrowsolutions.ca that's the agronomy and research company and there's also convergence growth but i don't know that they have a website yet uh will be coming shortly so yeah we're around and drop us a line appreciate you listening and take care